brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, folks, here we go. Doing the thing from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and I'm sure I don't need to tell you this, but a lot of things just don't add up about the events of 9-11. We're told that the Twin Towers collapsed into their own footprints with expert precision simply because they were struck by airplanes. Never mind the many, many witnesses who said they heard explosions going off in the building. Don't worry about the first 70-plus undamaged floors of each tower unraveling at freefall speed. And definitely don't think too much about Building 7, the 52-story skyscraper that wasn't hit by a plane at all, but also collapsed at freefall speed into its own footprint because of office fires, which was even reported on before it happened. Couple all this with the ready-to-roll-out Patriot Act, the War on Terror, and the TSA, and clearly 9-11 was the catalyst for some major changes that now seem to be the norm, with hundreds of thousands of lives lost, as well as trillions of dollars. Folks, I think many of us are past the fact-gathering stage of 9-11. The case has been made, and now, as cynical as we might be, we just seek justice and accountability. Well, it seems as if the stars have aligned, and we might finally have some serious movement in this very area. Lucky for us today, we have a powerful panel of professionals all involved in moving the needle towards legal action and a new investigation of the events of that day. First, we have Mr. Richard Gage, AIA, a San Francisco Bay Area architect with 30 years experience, member of the American Institute of Architects and founder of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. We also have with us Barbara Honiger, MS, who has served in high-level positions in the U.S. government, including White House Policy Analyst, Special Assistant to the Assistant to the President, and Director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice. From 1995 to 2011, she also served as Senior Military Affairs Journalist at the Department of Defense's Naval Postgraduate School. She's also the author of the legendary book October Surprise, which covered the deep story behind the Iran-Contra scandal and ultimately led to a full subpoena power congressional investigation funded at the level of the 9-11 Commission. 
She is also a board member, officer, and member of the Research and Petition Drafting Committee of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, which filed a historic petition on April 10, 2018, demanding a special criminal grand jury to investigate the real causes of collapse of World Trade Centers 1, 2, and 7 with the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, which has been granted. And rounding out this truth pursuit trifecta, we have David Meiswinkle, J.D., a licensed attorney in New Jersey since 1989 and a practicing criminal defense attorney for over a decade. He is presently the president and a board member of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. He is also a retired police officer of 23 years and a United States Army veteran. In 2009, he ran as an independent against Chris Christie for governor and was the only candidate who spoke about the need for a new 9-11 investigation. In 2010, he ran as an independent for Congress against Chris Smith, again exposing the need for a new 9-11 investigation. So there we have it, some cliff notes to three very accomplished powerhouses in the pursuit of truth. Richard, Barbara, and David, welcome to THC. Thank you very much. All right. All right. So this is a real honor and a pleasure, guys. I think the audience is pretty well educated on 9-11 and the illogical elements, the official story. Of course, we're going to have to remind them of some of that. But many of us have grown pretty cynical thinking that nothing will ever be done about 9-11 itself. And the reason you guys are here is because not only have you all been dedicated to turning that tide for years, but it seems like some very important first steps have been achieved in the long road to legal accountability, and that's why we're doing this today. I tried to relay the finer points of your backgrounds there, which are all full of accomplishments, but maybe so the audience can get to know your voices, get to know you, we can briefly touch on how each of you came to question the official story and how you've applied your expertise to this campaign to get some real justice almost two decades later. Richard, maybe you wouldn't mind kicking this off for us. Yeah, 12 years ago, Greg, I was on my way back from a construction observation meeting, flipped my radio onto KPFA in Berkeley. It was free speech radio station, kind of socialist if you ask me. I was a flag-waving Reagan Republican, so I don't know what I was doing listening to that station, but I'm <laughs> glad that I did. Because what I heard was David Ray Griffin, now an author of more than 10 books, probably 12 or 13 now, on the subject of the destruction of the towers and the rest of the events on 9-11. I was shocked to hear that he was discussing the research report of Graham McQueen, who documented among the 500 first responders, more than 25% of them were experiencing, seeing, hearing sounds of explosions before the onset of the collapse of the Twin Towers. And they are very specific about explosions before the towers came down. Pop, 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 all the way around the building like a belt. All these explosions, quote after quote after quote like that, many of them seeing flashes of light sequentially. So this is was extremely concerning to me. So he was speaking at the Grand Lake Theater that night, and I went, and they were sold out. 600 people filled that theater in March 30th of 2006. And I had to go home and watch on the live stream, and I'm going, what have I gotten myself into? Because I'd never heard any alternative theory about how these towers came down. So here he was talking about 
even a third tower that came down, building seven. I didn't know a third tower came down. I mean, I've been an architect well before 2001, as you indicated in my introduction, and not a word about a third skyscraper. I mean, here's a 47-story skyscraper, which on the afternoon of 9-11, after, once again, witnesses hear explosions, this building drops like a rock straight down, uniformly, symmetrically, and at free-fall acceleration into its own footprint in the exact manner of a classic controlled demolition. And I'm going, what in the world? That's obviously a controlled demolition. Who did this? Why? Well, this is part of the World Trade Center complex. It wasn't hit by an airplane. It had a few fires from the, the North Tower when it came down. So I just started launching into this. I said, I got to find out what's going on here because it's something that we have not heard about on CNN. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously a great catalyst for seeing that something doesn't add up. And what would you say is your current role in the fight for answers and the current events that are going on with these two organizations coming together? Well, I put together a PowerPoint and took it to the architecture firm I worked with. Fifteen architects came. I bought them pizza, so they had to come. <laughs> and uh, they watched it. Before that, they thought I was kind of nuts because for a few months I was talking about this. And most of them just didn't agree at all. They were quite skeptical. But every one of them, after seeing that 45-minute presentation, agreed with me, oh, my God, you're right. These towers were brought down with controlled demolition. Where do I sign? Hmm. So that was our first 15 architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Now we have 3,000 demanding a new investigation publicly on our website, and they are on record with their very serious concerns that I'm looking forward to talking with you about today, because since then, we have been to every member of Congress individually three times over the last 10 years, and we've given them our petition, our documentary, 9-11 Explosive Evidence, Experts Speak Out. It's free on YouTube. People can see all this evidence we're talking about today. Go to YouTube and search Experts Speak Out. And then we've also gone all around to conferences of architects and engineers around the country trying to educate the profession because the American Institute of Architects has not issued one bulletin, not even a mention of a third skyscraper that came down on 9-11 because allegedly this building, according to the official story, came down due to normal office fires. Well, normal office fires have never brought down a skyscraper before 9-11 and not after or on 9-11 either. So this has to be the most studied building, this one that wasn't hit by an airplane and also the other two, as we'll get into later. So we're well on our way, as you know now, with the legal effort, which is just launching big time. Yes. Well, hey, 3,000 architects and engineers, quite an accomplishment. I appreciate everything you have done to push this case forward. And Barbara, let me ask you, when did you realize something wasn't adding up? And what is your role in this current fight for answers? <laughs> well, you know, it's a small world. I'd like to start by just pointing out that Richard was driving down the freeway in the East Bay of California, there in the East San Francisco Bay. and he listened to KPFA to my soul sister, Bonnie Faulkner's program. And it was she who was 
interviewing on her show Guns and Butter, the dean of the 9-11 Truth Movement, David Ray Griffin. I believe that was in 2005. And Richard mentioned that he was a Reagan Republican. Well, I was in the Reagan White House, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned in my bio. So it's a small world. It's a very small world, and it's getting smaller, and you're talking to three people who are part of, I guess I'd call it a carass for 9-11 Truth worldwide. But to answer your question directly, on the morning of 9-11 itself, I was the senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, which is the premier science, technology, and national security affairs graduate research university of our entire Department of Defense, of the Pentagon. Mm. So in that role, you can imagine that I was pretty connected uh, (laughs) to a lot of people at the Pentagon who would love to fly out to beautiful California and leave the Pentagon and come out and play golf and maybe give the Secretary of Navy's guest lecture. And all of these high-ranking officials from the Secretary of Defense and the Assistant Secretary of Defense and the Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Assistant Secretaries of Defense, they all came out to the Naval Postgraduate School, and it was my job to interview them for our website, for our magazine, for our newspaper, etc. So on the day of 9-11, I was driving into the Naval Postgraduate School, and unbeknownst to me, the first tower had been hit already on 9-11. And I was not allowed into the gate because only a very handful of top officials there were considered so-called essential personnel, which you heard a lot about during the recent government shutdown. Not everybody is considered essential personnel. So I was sent away for about 24 hours, along with the vast majority of the 3,000 or more people who worked there. So I went home and started watching the coverage on television. Both towers had been hit, and the towers had not yet come down, as I recall. But in any case, the bottom line is that I saw the coverage on TV, and I instantly, instantly knew that something was terribly wrong. And from that moment forward, I started researching and interviewing all of these high-level officials from the Department of Defense who would come out to the Naval Postgraduate School And as a result of that, every single one of them spoke to me on the record, but without any requirement of secrecy. So over the years, I researched and developed what actually happened at the Pentagon. So that's my expertise. And even though we're not going to be talking about that today, Mm -hmm. we're going to be talking about the World Trade Centers 1, 2, and 7. That is how I got involved from day one. And then about two years ago, I was asked to join the research and drafting team for the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry and our president of the board. I'm also on the board and the president of the organization, attorney Dave Meiswinkle. You're about to bring him in on the call. So I'm now a member of the board. We have eight board members of that organization. And Dave is going to be talking to you in more detail about our breakthrough for 9-11 justice by the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. Yes. Thank you, Barbara. Man, a life in the lion's den, no doubt. And uh, That's right. David, yes. Let me ask you the same question. When did you realize something wasn't adding up? And what is the reason why we're talking today? It's very exciting. Right. 
Thank you for having us on the program. My interest really with government goes back a lot further than the 9-11 incident. I remember as a young boy when John Kennedy was killed and the trauma that caused and the consternation and guessing as to who was responsible and what happened, what was that all about, because that certainly realigned and shifted our nation in a different direction. Mm -hmm. And I remember certainly when Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King were both killed, and I had a lot of questions as a young person about what happened there. And then when the Vietnam War progressed and the Gulf of Tonkin, we found out that that didn't happen the way they said it happened, yet we were committing over half a million soldiers there in Vietnam. That raised questions. When I was a police officer, certainly the Waco, how that came down, the Inferno in Waco, how that wasn't properly handled, mm -hmm. the Oklahoma bombing, and how, in my estimation, that was not properly handled. And at this time now, I'm a police officer in what I would describe as a fairly corrupt administration, and I'm challenging them and did for a number of years and in part successfully, realizing that there is another face to government that most people don't see, but when you're inside it, you do see it, and sometimes it could be viewed as a fairly sinister face. When 9-11 happened, I was just leaving the police department. I had been there for 23 years. And some of my co-workers that I'd worked with went up there briefly right after and during that period of time. It did not look right to me from the beginning when I found out that the crime scene was not properly protected and that the steel, which would be evidence, was being carted off and chopped up and sent overseas and that forensic studies were not being done and that there was a lot of questions there and same with regards to firemen having questions about spoilation of evidence and how it was not being checked for explosives and things of that nature. And just the common sense viewing of the explosions, what well, we say explosions, so of the buildings down, the totally annihilation of the buildings and the pulverization to dust, the disappearance of these amazing structures, that certainly raised some questions as to whether office fires caused by airplane fuel or just office fires in the case of Building 7 could actually bring those buildings down. Later on, I ran for office for the governor of New Jersey, and one of the people that I contested was Governor Christie, mm. who had been actually the U.S. attorney at that time, I believe, and who had been brought in right after 9-11 and was... I argue I should have been on top of the destruction of the evidence and the carting away of the evidence. But anyway, I criticized at that time the need for a new 9-11 investigation. At that time, I didn't know that architects and engineers existed, actually. That was in 2009. In 2010, I ran for Congress and did the same thing, again, as an independent. And nobody really knew probably who I was, and I didn't have any money really to promote it, other than some papers did pick it up, and they did pick up the fact that I was calling for a new 9-11 investigation. And after those elections, I was at a gathering and I, our friend advised me about a group that I'd never heard of, architects and engineers. And I pulled them up on the web and I looked at this and I said, boy, these guys are pretty neat. They're not politicians. 
that was refreshing. They're scientists. And the scientists are saying what I was feeling and in some way uh, had visualized possibly what happened, but they were putting it in scientific terms, no spinning. And I connected with that organization and for a while was fairly active. And I basically met Richard up in Connecticut. I went up there to hear him speak. I went out of my way and drove up not that far from New Jersey, probably less than 150 miles, heard him speak. And I got a little bit involved. And then I started something in New Jersey called New Jersey 9-11 Aware because I won't go into it. New Jersey has a lot of connections to 9-11 also. Mm. Shortly thereafter, somebody in architects and engineers mentioned my name because a woman I know and have met and we're good friends now, Pamela Sensei, was riding her bicycle across the United States from the state of Washington with some important documents. And she was going to Washington, D.C. to drop them off. And they were needing an attorney maybe to go down there and meet with her and just be around, make sure that, you know, everything is up and up. So I met her down there and we went to FBI headquarters in Washington and did give them some documents. One of them is the number one exhibit that the lawyers committee submitted. And it has to do with the thermatic material. Niels Harris and Stephen Jones, the red gray chips that showed that nanothermite, an active incendiary explosive, that nanothermite level that is utilized by the military and created by the military was in the dust sample. So we presented that actually in 2013, if you can believe that, to the FBI. So I continued to be observant and wanting to do something to get to the truth, insulted by the process thus far because it didn't seem to really be interested in truth, read the 9-11 Commission report twice and saw many holes and emptiness there and eventually hooked up with some attorneys that I was asked to join a board and I did. And that was the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, which I am now the president and had the honor, along with another attorney, Julio Gomez and Bob McElvain, who is probably the most prominent family member of a victim. His son was Bobby, he was killed going into the North Tower, I believe so, building number one in the lobby area. And we went out and presented the grand jury petition to the U.S. Attorney's Office on April the 10th. So that's a little bit of my chronology there. Mm. Beautiful. Great context for people, guys. It is sometimes hard for an individual to accept something so huge could be a manipulated event or a false flag. And so I do like to hear about those catalysts that kind of put people on that page. Now, let me ask the legal ex experts here to walk us through these recent events. Sometimes people who are unfamiliar with the legal process can have a hard time wrapping their heads around exactly what is going on with this process, but it's pretty amazing. The Lawyers Committee filed a grand jury petition the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York responded with a letter that said he would comply with the request. And so what does that really mean? What happens now? Right. Well, that's very significant. And had it not been for that short letter that was written on November 7th, 2018 by Jeffrey Berman, who's the United States attorney, and that's in the Southern District of New York, we probably wouldn't be here speaking because it wouldn't probably be big news. And we would be another one of these, quote, conspiracy relics mm -hmm. that gets cast off. And usually in those conspiracy relics, there's a lot of truth. That's why they're being cast off. But 
In this case, for unknown reasons, and we can speculate on the various reasons within the present context of history, we have been invited inside the castle. <laughs> In other words, the people of the United States, or at least we'd like to think that this petition represents concerns of all people in the United States and throughout the world for a truthful and just resolution to this outrageous crime that for the first time, and now it's 17 years later or 18 years later, for the first time, we are being invited inside now to present evidence which is totally contrary to the official story. And Richard will go into that in depth, but this evidence shows that controlled demolitions, bombs, and explosives were used to bring the buildings down. Mm. And that in itself opens up everything. That's, of course, what we want. We want everything to be opened up. We want all the cards to be put on the table. Now, this grand jury is, and as you know, the 9-11 crimes are very sophisticated, very layered, and they were coming about in different areas. This is not about the Pentagon and not about Shanksville. This is particularly about the evidence at Ground Zero. And the evidence at Ground Zero was gathered in large part by architects and engineers over many years by excellent scientists and professionals. Mm -hmm. So that's the significance of it is that we've never been here before, and no one has. So it's all uncharted area. And the grand jury is composed of 23 individuals, just like us, it could be, who are vetted and brought on through a election roll of voter registration. That's what my understanding, how they get the names from them. And a grand jury can be in session for up to 18 months and be extended. But the process is in secret, all right? So to protect them, in a sense, and to basically not let everybody know what's happening. May I add? Mm-hmm, please. Well, people need to know the really exciting content of the information that we know is going to be, or may have already started to be being presented to a special criminal grand jury that the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York has agreed in writing in a letter dated November 7th of last year, 2018, to the Lawyers Committee. The U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, which is the federal jurisdiction for Ground Zero, where 9-11 happened at the World Trade Center complex on 9-11, he will be, if he hasn't already, presenting a specific petition with 57 evidentiary exhibit to the grand jury. Now, how do we know that? We know that because in his letter, dated November 7th of last year, the U.S. attorney states explicitly that he will comply, that he is complying with a specific statute, a specific federal law, and that is U.S. Code Section 18, U.S. 18, Section 3332. And that is a federal statute that we cited in our petition that was submitted to the U.S. Attorney in April and amended in late July of last year, 2018. Our petition explicitly demanded that the U.S. Attorney comply with that particular federal law. What is that federal law? 
require him to do? The simplest answer as to why the U.S. attorney is convening the special criminal grand jury is because the law requires him to do it. It is not discretionary under the law. Now, that doesn't mean that they might not have ignored it. (laughs) Right. Yes, they could have, and they often do. But he did say that he would be presenting our petition. Now, what I'd like your listeners to do is to read the petition. So you do that. It's in the public domain on the Internet. And the way you read the petition and the exhibits, and when you read them, know that the 23 grand jurors will be reading these because the law requires the U.S. attorney to present our actual petition and exhibits to the 23 grand jurors. And the way you read the petition and the exhibits is you go to the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry website, and that website is LC, which stands for Lawyers Committee. So that's LC4FOR911.org. That's LCFOR911.org. It's obvious when you go to our website on the main page, click where it says to read the petition. And when you bring up the petition, by the way, it's not quite obvious. You need to scroll down with your cursor in order to go to page two, page three, etc. And the petition is a little bit over 50 pages. And within the petition, there are live links to the exhibits, or you can go directly to the exhibits through another link on the homepage just to go straight to the exhibits. But I recommend going to the petition. And for laymen, as opposed to attorneys, I recommend going directly to page 22, which begins the evidentiary section of the petition with those live links to the exhibits. And when you read them, know that this explosive information that proves the official story is false and proves what we know about what did happen at World Trade Centers 1, 2, and 7 on 9-11, that those 23 grand jurors will be reading what you are reading. And you better be sitting down when you do. (laughs) Beautiful. Yes, that is so well said, because as David mentioned earlier, it's very layered like JFK, and there's many different threads that go all over the place. But for people who have even digested hours and hours of material on 9-11, it's very exciting to see specifically what is going to be presented in this situation. So I guess one of my curious questions is, I know these are secret proceedings, and it's supposed to be a criminal grand jury of 23 random citizens using the voting registry to find these people and, of course, vetting them, but randomized citizens. And you guys, even though you submitted this, you aren't even privy to where this process is, as I've kind of gathered from your statements. Like, you don't know if they're in the selection process or what, right? It is very secret, even from you, though you submitted it. That's correct. We've written them. We're waiting for a reply. And we're ready to send them something, actually. But we've written them and told them that we would be glad to help them in any way we could. In fact, also in making presentations, that that would be a system in making presentations and hopefully getting people from architects and engineers in there to make presentations also. Hmm. So we haven't heard back from them on that. If we somehow find out that they're not doing what we hope they're doing. I'm not sure how we would find that out, but you never know. We have prepared an action, which you call a mandamus action, which we have to file in the federal court. 
which would be asking a judge to command them to do basically what they're supposed to do, and that's to present the evidence to the grand jury. The mandamus action would mandate them, as Barbara mentioned, not discretionary on the part of the U.S. attorney. The U.S. 18 U.S.C. 3332, it mandates that the U.S. attorney make this presentation. Mm -hmm. So would you, I know the proceedings are secret, but would you even be notified of a conclusion? Like there has to be some kind of mechanism for accountability. I'm sure there would. I'm sure there would be. For the attorneys involved here, this is a new process for us. Now, as a police officer, I was involved in grand juries. I testified at grand juries. I actually ordered at one time because I had a co-defendant that I was defending. I got permission actually to get a transcript from the grand jury because this information is being recorded or taken down. There's be a record of it, but the record's not available to us. But I have on the state level in New Jersey been able to be involved. But this is such a nature of a crime that you would think that it would take a long time to get into it. I was involved with one which lasted, it seems to be two years. And eventually indictments did come down on people that should have been indicted. But the process is a long process. And it basically have to say that we have to have some patience here as far as what's happening in New York. Now, there are other things that we can do, meanwhile, which we are going to be doing. But the question's a good question. We ask it to ourselves is when is we waited too long before we haven't got a positive response, mm-hmm. okay? So it's not that long yet, okay? So we got the letter in November, and let's see, so that's December, January, so it's two months ago, mm-hmm. right? So it's not that long ago. And as Barbara mentioned, the chronology is that the first petition was given on April the 10th. And on July 30th, we gave them an amended petition, which basically amended the crimes that were being discussed. And then we just added them to basically make it more secure. Originally, the petition only covered federal laws that criminalized bombings of places in public use and government facilities. Then we added federal law criminalizing acts of terrorism transcending national boundaries, federal law criminalizing providing support to terrorists, and federal law criminalizing the killing of a federal government agent and employee believed that two FBI officers were killed. In the letter we received from the U.S. attorney, he says, we have received and reviewed. And now this is as of November 7th. So, and what Barbara mentioned is that on our website, lc4911.org, is the petition, 52 pages, and the exhibits, 57 of them. It will take you a while to go through the exhibits. And by him writing that, we have received and reviewed. To me, that means they've looked at everything. And after they looked at it, they thought it was reasonable. And that's why they invited us in, (laughs) all right, because they looked at the evidence and they said, whoa. So they're calling a special grand jury based on that petition. Mm -hmm. Right. I'd like to add, if I could, that the 57 exhibits, people need to read the petition beginning on page 22 of the petition. By the way, the November 7th letter has been scanned from the U.S. attorney, and it's also on the Lawyers Committee website, lcfor911.org. What I'd like to do, though, is to kind of directly answer the question that you asked a few minutes ago, and that is that the purpose of a grand jury, of course, is to see if there is sufficient information 
to indict specific individuals and perhaps also corporations, companies, entities, in addition to individuals, for specific crimes. And if there are indictments, of course, that come out of the grand jury, which is its function, its primary function, then, of course, those will almost certainly be public. And we would, not only the Lawyers Committee, but the world would know about it if someone was indicted, just like Robert Mueller, the special counsel, has been indicting a number of individuals who served in high-level positions in the Trump administration that are all over the international and national mainstream press and media. Of course, that would be the case if there were actual indictments. And also, if the grand jury wrote a report that would likely, almost certainly, be made public as well. So those would be the situations in which we would know, even if we don't learn something earlier from the U.S. Attorney's Office. Great, great. Thank you for that. Yes, it's just one of those things where you got to make sure this stuff isn't swept under the rug. And the more attention we can draw to it, the more public pressure we can mount, the more we can educate the citizens about what is going on, the better. And so, Richard, obviously, the expertise of architects and engineers is crucial to breaking through the denial that so many folks might have. Can you elaborate on the data points here and just what happened on 9-11 and how it couldn't have really happened the way we're told it did? Yeah, we start with Building 7 because the grand jurors are going to see a building collapse that wasn't hit by an airplane on the afternoon of 9-11. And what they're going to see is exactly what they have seen in their lives and have a frame of reference for understanding. And that is when they demolished the old hotels in Las Vegas, where witnesses hear and see explosions. And then the building drops. Now, the only way a 47-story or any building can drop at freefall acceleration, which means there's no resistance supporting it. All of a sudden, the building goes from stationary, intact, to dropping at freefall. That's as fast as a bowling ball falling out of the sky. Well, the building had 80 columns in it, and all of a sudden, it's dropping symmetrically, which means each of those 80 columns had to have been removed all at once. Now, the question for your audience and for the jurors is, can fire do that? Does fire have that precision? And of course, the answer is no. Well, fire is the official cause of this building's collapse. And then there's an elaborate theory that NIST came up with. NIST is the National Institute of Standards and Technology to explain how this fire caused long span beams to push a girder off of its seat on this particular column in the northeast section of the building, column 79. And then that caused a progressive collapse around that column leaving it unbraced for nine floors and it begins to buckle. And then the theory goes on to suggest that the instability travels all the way up to the penthouse, the east penthouse, causing it to fail. And then within six seconds, 
this instability travels laterally across the inside of this football field long building, leaving it completely gutted inside. And then after six seconds, after column 79 buckles, the entire building comes down. Now we have spent 10 years now showing every problem because there's not any part of this story that makes any sense believe it or not hmm. this is all a fabrication on the part of nist which is under the commerce department which is under the bush administration and this is an agency that the bush administration replaced the leadership of when they came in so we need an investigation that looks at what could have brought this building down and in fact, we have spent $300,000, well, we're still paying for it, but the University of Alaska, the chairman of the Civil Engineering Department, Professor Leroy Halsey, has taken on the effort in over three years to try to prove if fire could have brought this building down. And they've determined, hands down, no way fire could have brought this building down. In fact, the only way that it could have been brought down is by removing the columns. And that's exactly what they did in their final analysis in the FEA, finite element analysis. They took out all the columns and indeed the building comes down in the exact manner that we saw in their computer model that we saw in the video. Contrary to NIST who provided their video to try to prove their theory, which actually completely disproves their theory. Hmm. So this is an extraordinary set of corroborating important data from a major university that is the University of Alaska in Fairbanks that corroborates the theory of explosive demolition, which is borne out by the physical evidence left under the pile. For instance, temperatures exceeding 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, you can't get that in an office fire. You can't get it with jet fuel. You can't even really get a quarter of those temperatures, especially in this building. These fires were few, small, and scattered, as your listeners will see if they go on YouTube and search Building 7 Collapse. And there's hardly any fires to be found at all in that building. But there is, according to FEMA, the finding of hot temperature corrosion attack on the steel with molten iron penetrating the steel and hot sulfur. Well, there's no reasonable speculation about where the sulfur might have come from. Sulfur is added to the incendiary thermite to become thermate. It becomes much more effective at cutting through steel. So thermite is an incendiary used by the military to cut through steel like a hot knife through butter. And its results, its byproduct is molten iron. And that's what we see laid out in pools, giant pools at the bottom of Building 7. The firefighters described it as flowing like lava, molten steel. And it's found in the aftermath of the Twin Towers as well. Very well documented in dozens of reports from first responders, iron workers, structural engineers. It's pouring out of the South Tower minutes prior to its collapse. This says, well, this must be aluminum from the jet planes. Well, aluminum doesn't glow bright orange and yellow in daylight conditions at all. This is clearly molten iron or steel, and tests confirm 
just like the tests that FEMA did in Appendix C of the report, the Building Performance Assessment Report in 2002 that they did, which NIST threw out of the report when they took over the investigation in 2002. And finally, for Building 7, came up with their report in 2008 without any reference to hot corrosion attack on the steel, which was very well documented earlier by FEMA, without any reference to pools of molten iron, without any reference to the photos that show molten iron pouring out of the crab claw excavators that are digging up this material, without any reference to the dozens and dozens of witnesses that are in our documentary called 9-11 Explosive Evidence Experts Speak Out, in which we include 40 high-rise architects, structural engineers, metallurgists, chemists, physicists, controlled demolition experts, all of whom are available to present their expertise and their expert testimony to the grand jury. Mm. Wow, that is a great, great overview. And I'm sure it's no surprise to this audience that official investigations don't often give us the exact truth, but Building 7 is such an oddity. And Richard, I've heard you talk about, in the case of all three buildings, that it would just be such a huge job. I mean, it would take months of preparation to have these towers fall the way they did. Well, can you tell us anything about the prospect of where we could see that preparation, perhaps the Ace Elevator Company? Yes, we certainly can. Ace Elevator had a contract, the largest modernization of elevators in the world. They came out of nowhere to get this work at the World Trade Center, and it's highly suspicious because they had 85 employees. I understand 50 of them at least were called out to a union meeting. So they were apparently not in the building, but others were, and they fled. They didn't stop and help the firefighters rescue the victims. This was quite a scandal documented in USA Today. So this could have given, in an undercover operation, access to the core columns and beams in the building, the two twin towers that are immediately adjacent to the elevator shafts, because these are not concrete elevator shafts. They're just gypsum wallboard. So why are we talking about this? Because the Twin Towers exhibited the evidence of a very explosive controlled demolition versus the very implosive classical controlled demolition at World Trade Center Building 7. In contrast, the towers, after the first four seconds, during which each of the towers telescopes down on itself. See, we're told by NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, that the upper part of these buildings drove the rest of the building down to the ground and then destroyed itself. Well, not only does that violate the laws of physics, I mean, you can't have the upper, lighter part of a structure destroying the heavier, intact, cold, hard steel below at near free fall acceleration. That's like running a Volkswagen into the Mack truck and saying the Volkswagen won that deal. It doesn't work like that. Hmm. So Newton's third law of motion says there's an equal and opposite force. So indeed, that's what we see in the videos. What they actually show is the upper part being destroyed itself in the first four seconds. It's telescoping down. There's nothing left to crush the rest of the building after four seconds. 
what is seen or what is heard is additional explosions by the first responders and then laterally freely flying ejections of four-ton structural steel sections laterally at 80 miles an hour landing up to 600 feet in every direction thousands of them most of the steel like 99% of it is outside the footprint of each of these acre size towers so the steel is outside the footprint i ask you and the jurors what can crush the rest of the building you say well there's concrete floors in that building isn't there well let's look at that because the concrete is not stacked up in piles the floors there's no stack of pancakes at the bottom of either tower it's a two-story pile of core columns twisted metal and powder well what happened to the acre size concrete floors well we look back at the videos and photos and we can see clearly they're being pulverized in midair as the downward acceleration is happening 90,000 tons of concrete's pulverized to a fine powder about 0.1 micron in size this is like to an ash the concrete is then spread from river to river across lower manhattan in a three square mile area so there's the 90,000 tons of concrete so if the steel wasn't causing this pile driver collapse and the concrete is outside the footprint as well what's left to crush the building almost nothing that's most all the weight of the building is the concrete and the steel so we have a complete violation of the laws of physics here as well as through the rest of this evidence which shows isolated explosive ejections occurring 20 40 even 60 stories down below the zone of destruction well what's causing those explosive ejections this says well that must be air being pushed down by this pile driver and then the air comes out down below because it's going down the elevator shafts under pressure well first of all the pile driver's not even there all the videos show it's gone in four seconds and if it were even there it would be going down the elevator shafts and coming out into this open area achieved by the unique engineering of the twin towers which we have 60 foot open areas on two sides 30 foot on the other two sides so that they could have cubicles uh, running across this open space so if that air was coming into this open space on any floor it would blow out all the windows or none of them but not these highly focalized pinpoint ejections that are occurring in a geometric pattern on the middle of the facades many of them so this is additional evidence so it adds up so much in fact the u.s geological survey provides perhaps the best evidence in their toxicological studies of the dust and an environmental firm called rj lee finding these previously molten iron microspheres about the diameter of a human hair on average some of them you can't even see by the naked eye there are billions of them up to six percent of some of these dust samples are these previously molten iron microspheres well how do they get to be molten that's again 2800 degrees to melt iron where does that come from well it doesn't come from melted steel because it's not steel it's elemental iron this is the byproduct of thermite found by the usgs and rj lee 
throughout all of their studies, and they actually document it very well, but they have no explanation as to where these previously molten iron microspheres came from. Well, maybe the answer is located in an additional set of evidence documented by a team of eight scientists from Denmark and other places around the world, Niels Harrett, Stephen Jones, and others, and they find these curious red-gray chips, red on one side, gray on the other. The red side, they get real curious because it comes up to a magnet. It's got iron in it. So they do uh, X-ray energy dispersive spectroscopy tests and find out that, my God, this is iron, elemental iron and aluminum powder in these chips. So this shouldn't be there. This is the ingredients of thermite, iron oxide and aluminum powder. So they do an electron microscope test and what do they find? They find nanoparticles of iron oxide and aluminum powder platelets, iron oxide rhomboidal crystals set in an organic bed of oxygen, silica, carbon. So they find the ingredients of the incendiary thermite embedded in organic material, which is used in TNT to provide the expansive concussive force that blows things over. So here's an incendiary that is engineered to become more explosive. And they prove that by setting these in a differential scanning calorimeter, a heater. And when it gets to be about 750 degrees Fahrenheit, they ignite, producing much more energy. Well, paint doesn't do this, even though they look like paint, because they have a similar color to paint, the uh, <laughs> primer on paint. Well, no, paint doesn't have these exotic properties. So what they've done here in the heater, when they ignite, they produce what? The same molten iron microspheres that the USGS found everywhere but couldn't explain. But here is the perfect explanation found in the laboratory by these scientists who put this whole peer-reviewed paper up on the Bentham Open Chemical Physics Journal for all to see. And it's one of their most popular downloads now. This is an extraordinary piece of evidence that's self-corroborating, repeatable, and could put a lot of people away for a long time if the grand jury sees it and finds people who could be responsible with indictments, which is their purpose. Mm. Bam. <laughs> Richard, bring in the heat. No pun intended. <laughs> and my last real question for you was just because I know that the Freedom of Information Act is being used a lot here, and you guys are requesting a lot of documents from FEMA, the FAA, the FBI, NIST, and others. I'm just kind of curious, maybe broadly speaking, who's cooperating and who isn't? Are you getting a little bit better cooperation from some agencies as opposed to others? We've gotten some cooperation. We're in the midst of a right-to-know action in Pennsylvania. It's a state action. It's like a state FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. And we're hopefully going to get a batch of documents soon. It was promised, and for some reason, it's being held up right now. I and Mick Harrison, our lit litigation director, we've been out to Shanksville, to Somerset, which is Somerset County, Pennsylvania, where the plane went down. And we've gone and met the coroner there, Wallace Miller, and we've had access to the files that he has. Twice we've done that, and we've made a list of requests there. So we're waiting for that. We also have, on behalf of the Lawyers Committee, a lawsuit against, it's called the Open 
Public Records Act against the New Jersey State Police to try to get documents that had to do with photos of people who supposedly were taking photos of the towers at the time they were under attack during that time and being jubilant and happy about it and were arrested at the time. To my knowledge, those photos have never been released to the public. So we're trying to do and get that. We have a possible action against NIST, that's the National Institute of Standards of Technology, that has a statute of limitation coming up to get some important documents. And we have some litigation at McHarrison, our litigation directors handling against the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Over the years, talking to our researcher, he has got a lot of information, but also often he doesn't get information. So it's not like it's they're forthcoming with the information. Sometimes it comes very difficult. So as we go forward here with a lot more Freedom of Information actions, we have to do some of them in reference to New York, others in reference to the Pentagon and to Shanksville. We have to be prepared to uh, eventually litigate them. And that, again, will cost monies to do that in time and expertise of people familiar with doing that. For this purpose, though, the grand jury joint fundraiser that Richard talked about in Barbara, we would ask that anyone that wants to really help us make sure we have the money that we need to carry this through in the long run. That's LC4FOR911.org. If you can contribute to that, LC4FOR911.org, it will go to a good cause, and that will be to fight for truth and justice as it relates to the events of 9-11. Thank you. You got it. And of course, yes, before we go, maybe if there's any other proper links and resources to throw out there, we can do that. Of course, I'll post the links along with the show. But is there anything else people should know about where to go to follow up and maybe contribute and also keep an eye on this ongoing process? Yeah, I would encourage people to get the information and share this with others. The technical information is more readily available on the Architects and Engineers website. That's our website, which is AE911Truth.org. That's Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, AE911Truth.org. And there people can also support the joint fundraising effort. We have a button there for this co-equal project to raise funds for for the attorneys. And we also have to package up the technical aspects, the expert testimony from the 40 high-rise architects, structural engineers, metallurgists, chemists, physicists, control demolition experts, and they're ready to go. It's just a lot of work, and our organization needs support as well. So I'm encouraging everybody to, A, get informed. We have the evidence section on our website. B, get informed of the 57 exhibits at the LC911 website and support both organizations. Right. I'd just like to add in the minute or so left, and I won't take the whole minute, <laughs> that people need to know that the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry has only just begun to fight. This is our first legal action. We will have many more on every aspect of 9-11 as planned, petitions on Shanksville, on 
the Pentagon on perhaps probably the anthrax attacks on the government cover-up mm. and many other aspects of 9-11. We have only just begun to fight. Cheers. David, any last words? Just appreciative of being on the show and just ask everyone to renew or recharge themselves and have a vision of a better future for all of us. And it'll start with resolving some of these problems that have never been properly resolved. And then we can go forward in a bright future for ourselves and our families. Thank you. Mm. Here, here. Awesome, guys. Well, I really, really respect everything you're doing. I hope you do get some support from the audience. It's been an honor and a pleasure for me to contribute in just a small way today with this show. I'll also be donating 100 bucks when we get off the air here. And I just wish you the best of luck on this ongoing quest, uphill battle for truth and justice. Keep it up, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Thanks, Greg. You got it. And another one in the bag, dear listeners. And I would say a pretty good one at that. It is pretty rare that I want to dedicate an episode to 9-11 at this point, because I would guess that most of us have watched more than enough documentaries or interviews on it in the last 18 years. But the fact that this grand jury seems to be happening, to me, that's worthy of an episode. And even though I feel as if I've gone over the evidence enough, it's still intriguing to hear their best arguments and what points of evidence will actually be presented to people. You know, I still place my bets on the work of Dr. Judy Wood. I think if you read her book, it's hard not to, especially when you factor in what we've learned about ether physics and technologies that utilize forces and fields that are barely even recognized in the mainstream. So it is hard to get people there. Because you're talking about things that people don't even really believe exist. I might as well be saying that a flying saucer took down the Twin Towers. I think it's actually kind of genius to use a technology that people don't know about because they will never fully figure it out. They will always squabble over the details like so many splintered off factions of the 9-11 truth movement have done. I was going to bring it up in the interview, but a part of me just feels like it's kind of further down the road stuff, and I really didn't want to push too hard because, look, if nanothermite was found at the site, both burned and unburned, then so be it. I mean, if that is a real fact, I'm willing to accept it. I still see no reason why all three buildings couldn't have been intentionally coated with nanothermite and then this energy field generation used to ignite it all to make sure everything was vaporized at once, you know? Obviously, we went over a lot of evidence today that does show very weird and abnormal qualities to the material and the building's destructions. And to be diplomatic, I would just say some highly advanced military weaponry that defied conventional knowledge of engineering, architecture, and demolitions was used. And that covers it all, right? Because I am looking for that common ground. But I also wanted to say something about it here because otherwise I'd get a bunch of messages about why I did a 9-11 show and never mentioned it. So I do still think it's in play. I just didn't think it really needed to be brought up here. It wasn't super appropriate. It wasn't the focus of the guest's work. And I don't really have an axe to grind about it. I'm just happy there's some movement, even if it might not be 100% 
exactly the movement that I'd like to see. It's very close. But in the first hour today, you know, it is a bit new for me to have three guests. I actually don't think it's ever happened. And it took some time just to get to know them and all their impressive accomplishments and their awakening moments and their input in this current situation. But I think we delivered a good, well-rounded chunk of information for everyone in that free show. I think you are left with a pretty good understanding of what's happening. But in the extra hour for Plus members, we went a bit deeper into some things that I find curious, like the fact that this very grand jury situation is in the same district of New York that's handling the Mueller probe, and Mueller was the FBI director installed just before 9-11. So we talked about that, and some of the surrounding details and what it might mean, and some of the political chess types of elements that might be involved in this case being heard at this particular time of all the times. I really, really liked what David had to say in that regard. I think I'd be on a similar page. But we got into that and also a few other things like Roger Stone and his indictment. In fact, you know, he's actually one of the biggest names, probably the biggest name that I've actually declined for THC. When his book came out, his publisher did get in touch with me about setting up an interview, and I just felt like it would be... I don't know, lending the THC platform for high-level talking points and a sort of perception management that I just didn't feel great about. I definitely like to just let my guests give their perspective, but when we're talking about someone so connected, I think that ends up possibly being a detriment to the credibility of the show and myself. I do think he's one hell of a character, though, and I would definitely recommend watching the Netflix documentary Get Me Roger Stone. I thought it was fascinating, and I was really surprised to just see what his career really does entail, and you'd probably understand why I declined. It's tempting to just go for the numbers and the name recognition, but that one was just over the line to me. But anyway, we also talked about censorship and alternative media crackdowns that have been involved in this very coverage. And then we went back to Richard for some more structural details and the fireproofing thread that is involved here. All pretty interesting stuff. I mean, even if you've made your mind up about 9-11, there's still so much stuff involved, so much data involved, so many little threads that you might not have heard about that it is worth resurrecting every so often, especially when we have a chance like this. I could tell you that I'm very skeptical of the legal system in general, but then the question becomes, how do you get 9-11 justice without using the court system? It seems pretty impossible, so we just have to deal with what we got. I hope we have accountability. I am cynical, but I'm not too cynical to provide an update when I think one is warranted to highlight an investigation that might be occurring. Maybe with enough buzz, the pressure will mount a bit more than it would have otherwise. Like I said, I donated 100 bucks myself, which is a pocket change-sized contribution to a team of lawyers' fees. I get that. But what are you going to do? They're going to get paid to use their expertise on some case. I want it to be this one. 
And higher side news, Sam Tripoli has a new bonus content format where he interviews people in front of a live audience at the L.A. Comedy Store. And I am lucky enough to be his guest next week. It's going to be Wednesday, February 13th. I think it's at 9 p.m., but I was told that it is free to attend. So if you're in the L.A. area and you like THC, come hang out. I'd love to see if we could make it a bit of a hang, you know? But it's nice for me because we did that live show at the Ice House, the oldest comedy club in the country, some say. Depends on how it's defined. And then we did that show at the Comedy Store in La Jolla, and that was nice. But I am such a fan of comedy that to do anything in the original Comedy Store is a bit of a bucket list item for me, even if it is just to record a podcast. It should be a lot of fun, and I thank Sam for bringing me in. So maybe I'll see you there. But with that said, big thanks to all three of the guests today. Richard, Barbara, and David are all so dedicated, and I have a lot of respect for fighting the good fight, despite how tough it must be. And how about Barbara being the inside whistleblower for the Iran-Contra scandal? (laughs) Wow, right? But I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're as compelled as I am to follow along with what's happening here. And maybe the guests we've had today and their credentials will be enough to share this show with someone who might be on the fence about 9-11. Because we did take time to refresh folks' minds about some of those details. And again, with uh, pretty impressive guests. So that is it for me. Your move, false flag facilitators, shadow state criminals, and the district court for the Southern District of New York. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings, control over everything, the nine to five is trying to steal ya, now don't that job seem silly, hello, can you hear me? Should I play back recordings from some spike agency? Wish we were younger and free. I'll be thankful when it's all exposed. The vast conspiracy, there's such a difference between us and the dead. It's so typical of me to 